With only a few weeks to go until the snap general election on June the 8th, pensions have become a key part of the campaign. I'm Sophia Imerson, senior reporter at Pensions Expert, and I'm delighted to be joined by Malcolm McLean, senior consultant at Barnet Waddingham, and Edward Brown, partner at law firm Hogan Lovells, to discuss the pensions proposals included in the Labour, Conservative and Lib Dem manifestos. The Liberal Democrats plan to establish a review to look into introducing a flat rate of tax relief for pensions, which they say would be set more generously than the current 20% basic rate relief. Malcolm, were you surprised that pensions tax relief didn't crop up in the Tory manifesto? Well, yes and no. Uh, Surprised that they didn't um, indicate in in more precise terms what, what they had in mind, but not surprised really that they left it out. That doesn't mean to say that they're not going to do something about pensions tax relief. I think that's almost certain. What they have done, of course, is escape from the uh, tax lock that the previous Prime Minister imposed upon the party for five years. That's no longer going to apply, so the Chancellor will have much more freedom to do things in relation to tax and therefore tax relief. And I expect a a cash strap. Uh, Chancellor over the next few years to have a good hard look at the cost of uh, p- pensions tax relief and probably do something about it. Yeah, I regarded that as a victory for the Treasury, the fact there hadn't been anything mentioned. If you haven't mentioned anything in the manifesto, you don't tie your hands. So uh, I think they've given themselves flexibility to do something there. And the current system of pensions tax relief, it's been described as costly and, and inefficient by some. If there are reforms to pensions tax relief, how do you think it should be done? Well, the ideal, I suppose, would be that all the parties agreed ideally on what the best solution would be and sat down and worked it carefully through with experts. Um, That's not going to happen. Um, I suspect there will be uh, a Treasury proposal which will be consulted upon. Um, They might decide to sort of try and get an outside expert in to look at it, prepare a report, which they might then read or might then ditch. Uh, But to be honest, I suspect it will simply be uh, the Treasury will work out what will get at the maximum savings that it thinks it can get away with and will then try and put that forward as policy, I think. I think there probably was a time when the Conservatives would not have wished to have done anything about higher rate tax relief. But I think Mrs May is now showing that she is prepared to take on some of these issues and I would expect them to introduce a flat rate of tax somewhere between 25% and 33%. It would have to be higher than 20% in terms of making it appear fairer to the uh, to the low paid, uh, but obviously less than 40% to make the savings that the Chancellor would want. So somewhere between 25% and 33%, and I, I would like it to be 33% if possible, the more the better, and to do something about trying to make people understand and appreciate the real value of tax relief, because that is one of the problems at the moment, that people don't actually understand that they're getting it. And uh, and there's a lot of money involved in this, and it needs to be spelled out. OK, and moving on to auto-enrolment, um, the Conservatives have proposed to extend auto-enrolment to the self-employed, um, but they haven't made any explanation on how they plan to do this. How practical, Edward, do you think it would be to enable so-called gig economy workers uh, to benefit from auto enrolment, and and could could they look at using the national insurance system to address this issue? They could. I mean, I, I think the gig economy and workers. I think the way you would deal with that is actually by amending the legislative definition of what a worker is. That would be the easiest way to uh, then extend auto enrolment to a wider group of people. What slightly surprised me in the manifesto was that it referred to uh, auto enrolment for the self-employed, which slightly, I confess, struck me as a, a contradiction in terms. The self-employed aren't going to send themselves notices about opting in or out of their own scheme. Um, they can just use a personal pension scheme. I confess I read a bit of that as thinking there was a little confusion, ill thought through. 
And Malcolm, which aspects of, of, of auto-enrolment do you think aren't getting enough attention? I mean, does the issue of, of contribution levels need greater focus? Well, absolutely. The, it, it is really a missed opportunity, in my view, that the current review of auto-enrolment is not actually going to look at the uh, minimum level of contributions. And that is, really is the big issue, as far as I'm concerned, about auto-enrolment. There are too many people, I think, paying that lower rate of contribution without actually realising what a poor return they're going to get from it. And to put it off until a later date means that it's going to take a little while for any change to come in. Whereas, in fact, if they'd embraced it in the current review or brought it in now, then they could decide what to do and bring that in from 2020 when the current uh, auto-enrolment uh, phasing in programme is fully complete. And I think that really should be done. Um, we do know that uh, many people are going to benefit from auto-enrolment, but not going to benefit perhaps as much as they would expect and therefore it is important to get those contribution levels up. I, I think that's absolutely right. It wouldn't entirely surprise me if in five years' time we did actually see higher minimum contributions. It also wouldn't surprise me if ultimately it becomes mandatory. Uh, to some, that would be one way to cut down on a lot of the bureaucracy that surrounds auto-enrolment and ensure people were actually saving adequately for their retirement. Um, uh, that wasn't the approach that was taken a number of years ago when it came in, but it wouldn't surprise me if it does in the future. Over recent years, a number of high-profile cases, um, the BHS scandal, for example, have thrown DB pensions further into the spotlight. Um, and tougher regulation to protect pensions during certain company takeovers and, and corporate transactions is a key part of the Tories' pension proposals. Uh, Labour has also pledged to amend the takeover regime to protect workers and pensioners. Um, so, Edward, to what extent are these party proposals to build on existing powers just a, a crowd pleaser? To be perfectly honest, I think to a large extent. Um, I think the existing powers in relation to corporate transactions basically work. They're not perfect and they can be could be tweaked at the margins, but they do basically work. I think the problem is that there has been an impression amongst the public and politicians of all parties that the BHS scandal arose because of a failure of regulation. And therefore, the way to respond to that is to have more regulation going forward. I, I don't think that was what it was about at all. Um, I, I don't think there's been enough adequate thought as to which bit of regulation allegedly failed and then how do you replace that in order to make sure the system works better going forward. Basically, a business that ran out of money and that stopped mm. succeeding. Um, that's basically where, uh, where it all ended up. So, no, I'm, I'm, I think it's just crowd-pleasing, to be honest. And how practical will these b proposals be to carry out, particularly with regard to um, punitive fines and, and then also this new criminal offence for company directors who, who risk the ability of a scheme to meet its obligations? The punitive fine idea is, is actually philosophically, it makes sense to me, because the, the position the courts have kind of taken at the moment is, if you do the wrong thing, then the maximum penalty you can pay is the contributions that you would have paid had you done the right thing. So if you, from a pure rational perspective, it's not a huge amount of incentive to do the right thing. So the punitive fines are supposed to make the wrong thing look much worse. And that's essentially why it's being proposed. So I can see the logic to that. The criminal offence, well, um, the manifesto said the Tories would consider introducing it. A tweet they put out a couple of weeks ago said they would do. So it's already been watered down a bit. I wouldn't surprise it. It wouldn't surprise me if that fell into the too difficult box by the end of things. I hope the regulator is honest with the government about the resource implications of these extra tasks that they will be asked to do to make sure that they can actually do them because one of the things that we don't want to ha happen is to um, uh, trivialise the, uh, the, um, the takeover situation and to make it so that uh, business actually becomes very frustrated about uh, 
been unable to act without long delays in getting clearance from the regulator. So they need to be very careful about this and be very clear on what they're doing and who they're they're going to take on in in this respect. I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think it will be critical to know the threshold that, w- that they will set in sure. order to have that mandatory notification. The regulator, in its response to the Select Committee inquiry, basically, I paraphrase slightly, but said, please don't make us have to do them all, because we simply don't have the resource to do that and we'll be overwhelmed. So I suspect it will only be the, the major transactions. But there is clearly a resourcing issue there. Yeah, I was going to ask, does the regulator have, have the resources to to do these things? Um, at the moment, no, to be honest. And I'm, I, I suspect the regulator would tell you that as well. Um, they will either need more resources from central government or raise more through levies from schemes. Yeah, and you've got to bear in mind they've got major tasks in hand with auto-enrolment still to come. We've got the small employers now on song on this and uh, things will not be as easy for the regulator as perhaps had been in the past. So there's a big challenge there for them. Uh, as predicted, the Conservatives have said that they plan to scrap the triple lock guarantee uh, and introduce a double lock in 2020, um, which would be cutting that 2.5% underpin. Uh, the Liberal Democrats and Labour, however, they've promised to maintain the triple lock. How financially sustainable do you think that would be? I, I don't think the, t- the triple lock is sustainable over the long term. I don't think in the short term it will make that much difference because inflation and average earn- earnings rises are actually probably at or above the 2.5% minimum anyway. So in the short short term, it doesn't make any real difference. But in the long term, there's no doubt about it, the, the triple lock will have an impact and, and will probably be unaffordable over that period of time. Um, I would like to see um, some consideration given to uh, trying to make uh, the situation permanent in the sense that are we going to have a double lock and is that going to continue forever? Or, or uh, is, at some point is somebody going to say, well, this is all costing too much, we'll, we'll just have a single lock? So there's great uncertainty around and, and people need to know in planning their future retirement uh, plans uh, exactly what's happening, particularly with the state pension, because the state pension is going to be the bedrock of many people's uh, retirement situation, and and therefore it is important that they know what they're heading for. So it's time to put this to bed, in my view, to to make it clear. And and I'm very pleased to see that the Conservatives appear to have done that, in the sense that they're not going along with the current vogue to to try and win votes by simply coming up with keeping the status quo. Is it likely, though, that the moving to a double lock would be seen as moving the goalposts and, and increasing uncertainty? I, I, well, I, I think it is increasing uncertainty, as, as Malcolm rightly says. We've uh, Basic state pension used to be increased by earnings, and then it was increased by reference to prices, and then it was increased by the triple lock, and now it's going to be the double lock, assuming the government is re-elected. I think there's a lot of uncertainty around it, but the problem is it's very expensive. We are in a time of heightened financial difficulty. It's, if you like, an easy place to try and make some savings from. I don't think it would be unacceptable to actually go for a single lock based on earnings because for many, many years the pensioner groups campaigned to restore the link with earnings, which was taken away in 1980 and didn't come back until uh, in the form of the triple lock uh, until 2015. Uh, 2010, was it, when when it came in? Yep. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, you know... Uh, I think they might might just about be prepared to accept that the link with earnings was what they've always wanted, and therefore that's what should continue. But it's, it, it will be a big step, I think, for the, mm. for the for any new government at the moment to scrap two two thirds of the triple lock, and therefore they, they will go for this. It may not may not survive. And on the topic of the state pension age, 
Labour plan to review the state pension age with a view to developing a, a flexible retirement policy to reflect variations in life expectancy and, and different nature of working lives. Um, and the party also promised no further increase, increases to the state pension age after uh, 2020, whereas the Tories have said they'll continue to increase um, the state pension age as, as life expectancies increase. What questions do you, do you think these raise in, these different proposals raise in terms of intergenerational fairness? Well, intergenerational fairness is an issue that is frequently cited as an ex- as a reason for cutting back on, say, uh, older people's benefits. But there's no there's no clear link necessarily between that and giving younger people extra money. It, it doesn't it doesn't seem to work out quite like that. Certainly, the the Labour Party's proposals to actually freeze the state pension age at sixty six in my view, is completely unaffordable and various independent estimates have suggested that that would cost perhaps as much as £300 billion, which is a phenomenal sum of money and clearly is unaffordable. People are living longer and I think we have to accept that the state pension age has to go back. That said, I think there may be something in the Labour proposals to try and look to find whether it's possible to allow people early access to the state pension in certain situations. Not not what they've suggested, linking it to occupation or location, but perhaps on some sort of actuarial reduced basis, like, like happens with occupational schemes. For example, it is possible to claim 5.8% increase if you delay taking your state pension by a year. Therefore, it, that could be turned on its head and you could get a 5.8% reduction if you took it a year early. There would have to be a minimum age, and that minimum age might be 66, but I think that's worth exploring. It's not everybody that's going to be capable of working on until these very later ages, and that's something I think that at some point uh, the government, any government, is going to have to seriously address. Edward, would you agree with that? I, I think that's absolutely right. It has always seemed to me a slightly curious anomaly that you could take it late, but you can't take it early. Um, I do think there's... Uh, well, I think the case for raising the state pension age is almost overwhelming, to be honest. We have given we had ages of 60 and 65 since 1909 and barely even got round to moving them until very recently, and even then only moving up to, uh, to 65 by 2020. Uh, I think the case for changing it is overwhelming, but I do think allowing people to take it early on a reduced basis would help deal with some of the concern where people say, well, I can't afford to, to wait to take my pension until my late 60s or 70. Thank you, Edward. Thank you, Malcolm. For more on the general election, including our 2017 general election interview series with political candidates representing their parties on pensions issues, please visit pensions-expert.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.